The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to episode number twenty-seven of the Paul Leslie Hour, and we are in the presence of a legend. For fifty years, Charlie McCoy has worked as a session musician. He's in great demand. In addition to his thirty-five solo albums. He's done more than twelve thousand studio sessions. Charlie McCoy has worked with everyone from Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel. He's an inductee of the Country Music Hall of Fame. So, Mr. Charlie McCoy, how are you? Well, I'm very well. Thank you for asking, and thanks for calling, Paul.、Um, it's great to talk to you. My pleasure. So. What part of the country are you originally from? I was born in Southern West Virginia, in the town where Hank Williams was found passed away. It's a, a little useless trivia for you. Interesting. Oak Hill, Oak Hill, West Virginia. He was on his way to a New Year's Day concert in Canton, Ohio, January first, nineteen fifty-three, and. When they stopped、uh, for gas, of course there were no interstates back then, you know. And they stopped for gas、uh, and coffee like five in the morning at a at a get the only gas station that was open. And、uh, the driver went back to see if you know if he wanted coffee or anything, and he he was gone. Hmm. And what would how would you describe that part of the country that you're from? West Virginia is a、uh, very very mountainous. It's been said that. If you could take an iron and iron West Virginia flat, it would be bigger than Texas.、Uh, hmm. There's, there's very, there's, a, you can't hardly find a long, long, long stretch that that is level. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a gorgeous part of the country.、Uh, the main economy early on were coal mines, which unfortunately, you know, they pretty much mined them out, and、uh, there was a lot of poverty in the state. But now there's a You know, there's a huge uh, industry, uh, chemical industry, in the Kanawha River, and there's a lot of tourism now because of the state's natural beauty. They have one of the great whitewater rivers in America, going right through the center, southern center of the state, the New River, and、uh, it's become a huge industry there. The whitewater rafting. Were your parents musical people? My dad could carry a tune, and he could. Play a few notes on a harmonica, which I didn't know till after I started playing. And、uh, my mother, unfortunately,、uh, had no musical talent. However, three of her brothers all played piano and guitar. So you mentioned that you didn't know your father had played the harmonica. Yeah, I had a. I got my first harmonica, and、uh, <laughs> my dad discovered it one day, and he said, "Where'd you get this?" And I said, "Well, he." Ordered it out of a comic book, and he picked it up and started started playing a song on it. And I had no idea he could play. Were your parents encouraging of you in terms of your pursuit of music? You know,、uh, I started when I was eight. You know, I don't know that anybody、uh, thought I was very serious. You know, an eight year old kid, how serious or or can they be about anything? And and、uh, most of my Early years before I became a, you know, a rock and roll teenager in the fifties, I was more interested in baseball and stuff like that, you know. 
However, I had a better than average year, self-taught to play the harmonica, and and I also started guitar later that same summer in 1949, where I had some tips from one of my uncles, and uh, and then in, in 1955. When rock and roll hit the radio, you know, of course, I, I owned a guitar and I and I was all over that. Uh, I started listening, you know, to to uh, Carl Perkins and Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis Presley and uh, and I was I wanted to be a rock and roller. If you could put it into words, what is it that you like about the harmonica? Uh not too many people play it. It's maybe one of the closest sounds of the human voice of, of any musical instrument. You can also play it, you know, you, you play inhale as well as exhale when you play the harmonica. So <laughs> you get a lot of breathing exercise. And I just, uh, I, I just think it's such a unique sound and people really gravitate toward it. You know, you, if you're out in a concert and, Somebody pulls out a harmonica. Whether they play good or bad, it gets people's attention. It always does. That's true. I've read about some of the instruments that you play, and you play quite a few. Tell us about the ones that you are comfortable on and, and all of the musicians that you know how to play, or instruments, I mean. Well, harmonica's first. Uh, probably, uh, probably... Guitar would be second. Bass would probably be third. I play the vibraphone. That would probably be fourth. And then uh, then keyboard and and some various uh, wind instruments. Trumpet, saxophone, and tuba, which I don't... I haven't done much of any of those, you know, in, in quite some time. But, yeah, so that that's... That's mainly, and then uh, you know, I'm one of these people. I'm I'm so curious about instruments that uh, I'll I'll try to figure out something on any I can get my hands on. Tell me about what brought you to Nashville. I was uh, I was senior in high school, playing every Saturday night at a country music dance in Florida, where I had moved when I was nine years old. And my job there was to play rock and roll 10 minutes each hour because the dance, you know, it was a, it was like a dance with, uh, you know, there, were, there was no alcohol there. So it was kind of a family thing. A good number of young people came. And so my job was to play rock and roll 10 minutes an hour for them. And the great Mel Tillis came in one night and heard me singing Chuck Berry. And he, uh, after I finished, he came over to me and he said, uh, man, if you, uh, you come to Nashville, you can get on records, you know? <laughs> and that was like showing a stake to a wolf, you know? And, uh, the day high school was over, I did indeed go to Nashville. And when I got here, Mel was out of town, <laughs> timings, everything. You know, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones, so people rarely called long distance. You know, I mean, I made, if I had any sense, I would call to see if he was, because he told me who his manager was. 
So on arriving, uh, I went to his manager's office, and to my surprise, when I met his manager, he said, Mel told me about you. And I, I was really knocked out about that. And he said, so would you like to do some auditions? <laughs> yeah, you, you're not kidding. So he set me up audition. Now, he, he never heard me. Just on Mel's word, he set me up with Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley auditions. Wow. And I went in and played my guitar and sang Johnny Be Good. And uh, both both gentlemen said the same thing. Well, son, I think you're pretty good, but, you know, we just don't do this kind of music here. And, of course, you know, when you're 18 and you know everything, <laughs> you're thinking, ah, what you know, this country music town. Uh, anyway, so then the best thing in the world happened to me, the best best moment of my life when Owen Bradley said to me, I'm having a session this afternoon. Would you like to come watch? And of course I would, I had nothing else to do. And I, I said, yeah, I'd like that. So I went over to his studio and watched 13 year old Brenda Lee record a huge hit record called sweet nothings. And at that moment, when I heard that first playback, I said to myself, Hey, I don't want to sing. I want to do this. Now that was that was three hours of changing my life right there. Well, what was it about the whole thing? What 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 made you feel that way? It was magic. These musicians were there, no music. They listened to this song once. It looked to me like they weren't even paying attention. And man, when that first playback was like, and I, it, I could best put this by a friend of mine who also had the same experience, came to town to watch a session, and he said, and I quote, he said, you know, these guys, they didn't pay attention. They seemed to be goofing off. They picked up their instruments, made fun of some of the licks. But when the red light came on, real men started to play. And that's what I felt. This was so amazing to me that what they made one take you know and i thought man this, this is this is true genius right here and i would love to be a part of this and part of it you are <laughs> absolutely well yes i was uh, very blessed i came back a year later dropped out of college broke my father's heart came back a year later and a year after that, May of 1961, I did my first record session for, guess who, Chad Atkins. Playing harmonica, of course. Mm. In that first session, what are your memories from that? Were you nervous? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? I mean, this was the A-team musicians. The same ones I had watched on that Brenda Lee session. And there were the Anita Kerr singers and 18-year-old unknown singer from Sweden named Ann Margaret. And uh, in my autobiography, I wrote, I thought I died and went to heaven. There was God, Chet Atkins, his disciples, the Nashville A-team musicians, his heavenly choir, the Anita Kerr singers, and an angel, 18-year-old Ann Margaret. 
I'm hoping you can back up a little bit. We recently lost one of the great musicians of our time. I'm talking about Mel Tillis. You knew him. Tell us your memories of Mel Tillis. Mel Tillis was, uh, you know, he, he's just an old country boy. What an amazing songwriter. I mean, songs like, you know, uh, Detroit City. And, uh, I mean, he, he, he had such a great career. And then, as a performer, you know, he kind of, he kind of raised the, he kind of raised the uh, level of performance out in Branson when he when he started out there. And uh, when I was called and told I was going to be in the Hall of Fame, they said, "Now you can choose who actually inducts you, and you can choose who makes the announcement at the press conference." And that was that was easy. I. I wanted Mel Tillis to make the announcement and uh, Hall of Fame musician Harold Bradley to do the induction because he was the first session leader I ever worked for. When you were inducted, what was going through your head? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it's like, you know, some years before I thought I never even would even think about the possibility because there were no studio musicians in the Hall of Fame. They changed that in 2003 when they inducted Floyd Kramer. And then they, they uh, decided then to uh, induct one every three years. So uh, the second one in was Harold Bradley. The third one in was me. The fourth one was Pig Robbins. And in uh, 2015, the great Grady Martin. And now, next year, 2018, we'll have another. Who has been the session player that you've played alongside that you were the most in awe of? Probably Pig Robbins. This guy was blind from childhood. He was like a computer. I mean, you play him a song once, and he's got it. Everyone else, you know, we to begin with, uh, everyone played everything from memory, but then... We learned this number system, a way to write songs down. But I, I can't tell you how many sessions I've been on. And some musician would say, hey, Pig, how's the bridge go again? You know, this guy was, he's, and, and not only that, but the, the contributions he made to records. All those great Charlie Rich records, that great piano on there, all the fans assume that's Charlie Rich playing the piano, you know. But it was Pig Robbins, and he's probably... He may be, other than Harold Bradley, he may be the most recorded studio musician in the history of Nashville. And he's still going, you know. You know, when the moment I asked you that question, I had this strange feeling that you were going to say Pig Robbins. Yep. <laughs> and, oh, and my the, what was a real honor for me is that he asked me to do his induction. And I was really honored to do that. So he's a friend of yours. He is absolutely a friend, yes. Through the years, have there ever been times where you doubted yourself? Uh, not really. It seemed, you know, compared to a lot of guys who come here to get into business... My my journey seemed to be relatively easy, and I'm not sure 
you know, I guess uh, the good Lord was looking out for me. I don't, I don't know why I was so blessed. But uh, from after that first session with Ann Margaret, on the at the end of that session, the bass player Bob Moore walked over to me and said, "Are you free Friday?" Hey, I was free the rest of my life, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm free. And he said, come back to the studio. We're going to record Roy Orbison. Oh, man, I was a huge fan of Roy Orbison. And we did the record Candyman, which was a huge hit. And after that record hit the radio, my phone started ringing. And from then on, it was, you know, I, I was I was one of them and uh, so proud to be in uh you know, to to have hung on this long to me is is uh, pretty amazing. You know, at my age, I still did 50 sessions this year, and uh, I know if you did at, told me 20 years ago, you, when you're 76 years old, you're going to do 50 sessions, I would have said, no, there's no way. You know, but it's it's quite a blessing, I can tell you that. What session would you say was the most impressive to you overall? Of all the artists that you worked with, I would. My favorite record I ever played on was by the the uh, songwriter Tom T. Hall. He did a record called "Old Dogs, Children, and Watermelon Wine." Also, uh, the great uh, record by George Jones called "He Stopped Loving Her Today." That one, that may have been my best. What I considered my most efficient, best, best playing behind a song, you know, to complement a song. And of course, that that's what we're supposed to do. As I, as I was told by Owen Bradley, you know, the artist and the song is the picture. We are the frame. Our job is to frame the picture as good as we can. And uh, I thought, I thought that was maybe my best work of framing the picture. Has there ever been an artist that you were intimidated by? No, not really. Because to begin with, you know, uh, as the young guy there, I, I'm uh, I'm in the midst of these veteran A-team session guys who've seen everything and done everything, you know. And when you're on a team like that, you have a lot of confidence. Yeah. Tell me about working with Elvis Presley. What was he like? He was amazing. Uh, you know, and the reason I worked with him to begin with is that uh, they were shoot. They were going to do the the soundtrack for the movie Harem Scarum, and the movie company changed the recording dates. Well, Elvis had this set group of guys that he worked with all the time. These guys were already working other sessions. And in Nashville, you know, it's it's unwritten law. You don't cancel one artist to go work with another. You just don't do that, you know. So they called Scotty Moore and said, you got to find an alternative band, you know. He said, that's not a problem around here, believe me. So he hired he hired a group of us who'd never worked with Elvis before. We were all a little bit, uh, you know, we were, didn't know what to expect. He walked through the door. He walked to every musician, shook their hand, and said, "Thank you for helping me." 
and from that moment on, you know, it was like, Hey, you know, he's, he's one of the guys and he was so nice. Absolutely. So nice. How did you first come to meet Bob Dylan? Uh, his producer, a singer songwriter from Texas named Bob Johnston, who had, I had gotten to know by, he, uh, came to Nashville. He was a songwriter. He came here to, to make demos of songs. He wrote for the Elvis Presley music group. So his idea was, uh, he wanted to get his songs in Elvis movies. And the way they did that, uh, when they would get a new movie script, they would send that script out to all of their staff songwriters. And these guys would compete for those spots in the movies. So Bob Johnston, who was the producer said, you know, he come to Nashville to make his demos and he ended up, he, I think he probably got six or seven songs in Elvis movies and the songs that didn't go in the movies. He pitched to other, you know, record producers and one, he was in New York at Columbia records and played him some of the songs. And the guy head of A&R there said, well, these demos are great. Where did you cut these? He said, I did those in Nashville. He said, man, uh, you ever want to be a record producer? That's one of those deals where you say yes and figure it out. <laughs> he said, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. They said, uh, we have an artist that's on the last session of her contract. And if nothing happens, we're going to drop her. Uh, would you like to take a stab at this? And he said, yeah, who is it? And I said, Patty Page. So he brought Patty Page to Nashville and recorded a big hit for her. It was a theme to a movie called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. And it was a big hit. So now Columbia Records thought, hey, man, we found we found a guy here now. So they offered him Bob Dylan. And uh, he moved to New York for a while. And he told me, if you ever come to New York, I can get you Broadway tickets. Okay. So... I had a trip to New York, called him up. I said, hey, how about the Broadway tickets? He said, no problem. <laughs> he said, hey, I'm recording Bob Dylan this afternoon. Why don't you come over to the studio? I want you to meet him. I said, okay. So I went over to the studio. He introduced me to Bob Dylan, and Dylan said to me, hey, I'm getting ready to record a song. Why don't you grab that other guitar over there and play along? The song was called Decimation Row from the album Highway 61 Revisited. And uh, three or four months later, I get a call from Bob Johnson, and he said, Dylan's coming to Nashville. Hire the band. <laughs> and later, uh, when talking to Johnson, he said, I know you don't know this, but in New York, I was using you for bait. He said, I wanted Dylan to record in Nashville. He didn't want to, nor did his manager want him to. But we talked him into it. <laughs> How do you remember Dylan reacting to Nashville? Uh, he was uh, very quiet, had nothing to say, played his songs. We would, uh, you know, I was session leader, so I'm kind of the middleman between him, the band, and the producer. He'd play the songs. We'd get an idea. 
I'd go over to him and say, Bob, what did, what did you think if we did this or did that? His answer was always the same. I don't know, man. What do you think? <laughs> so uh, I quit asking. <laughs> I told the producer, I said, I'm asking him. He's not answering. I'm going to quit asking. Maybe if we do something he doesn't like, he'll say something. But he never said a word. Hmm. That was the way it, the whole thing was. And that was that's the way it was for three albums. John Wesley Harding and uh, Nashville Skyline were the two albums that followed Blonde on Blonde. They were all huge hits, and he never said a word. What do you think about those recordings? Uh, a lot of it is not my cup of tea. There's, some of them has, have great lyrics. But what that what those albums did for Nashville recording is amazing. I mean, it was like the floodgates opened for the uh, the folk rock artists. We uh, back then we called them hippie artists, you know, because none of those people would come here. Nashville was always, you know thought, oh, you know, it's just a country music place. That's all they do there. And, uh, you know, back in that day, kind of the Bible of the uh, folk rock community was Rolling Stone. And they had very little good to say about Nashville. I, I read a couple articles, you know, uh, oh, assembly line records, uh, you know, uh, all business and no art, you know, that kind of thing. But after Blonde on Blonde, that changed in a hurry. And and the parade of artists that came through here was amazing. Tell us about the approach that you've taken with your own albums. How do you approach the, the Charlie McCoy records? My records, I, I record my records like I'm a singer. And I, I, I uh, you know, I believe that, I believe in... Uh, I believe that people, when they listen to instrumental music, which is mainly what I do, I believe if if it's a familiar song, they hear the lyrics in their head. And I'm always conscious of that. Uh, if I don't know the lyrics of a song, I, I record with a lyric sheet in front of me. I like to try to phrase the melodies the way the lyrics phrase, you know. And... Uh, a lot of young harmonica players, because of that, think my records are boring, you know, that uh, I'm, there's not enough flash, you know. However, uh, I don't really make records for harmonica players, you know. I make them for country music fans. And uh, so that's my approach. I use the best musicians I can get. You know, we record great songs with great musicians. And uh, that's it. And... Uh, I know you. Your uh, your literature told you thirty five. Well, that's that's a little dated. I now have forty one. I see. Well, how does Charlie McCoy define good music? I like real music. I don't like I don't like machines. <laughs> I don't like uh, I like singers that have an identity. You know, sometime in this day and time. You turn on radio and you can't tell one singer from another. I love it when the minute you hear a singer, you know who that is. And the early, you know, the in the 
golden years of country music. I mean, Patsy Cline, Tammy Wynette, Loretta Lynn, uh, Conway Twitty, Johnny Cash. There was never any doubt who was singing when they came on the radio. Uh, I, I like that. I like the and whether you know whether it's uh, it, whether it's perfect doesn't matter. I, I want to hear emotion and uh, you know and tell tell the story, deliver those lyrics. And to me, that's uh, I, I just like real music. Well spoken. And you know, I, another point, uh, because of the instruments I play, and I know with all the technology we have today, I'm capable of sitting home here and making my own records, the whole thing, but I will not do it. I want to make music with other musicians, and all my albums, you know, there's a ton of musicians on them, and they're all great, and that's if I can't make music like that, well, then I probably stop making solo records because that's what that's what I really enjoy. You like to collaborate. I do, and we have this city has got the amount of amazing musicians here is unbelievable. It really is, and uh, that's you know, it just uh, it fires me up to work with these people. Not just singers. Any any kind of musical artist, is there anyone out there that you haven't worked with that you would like to? Yeah, I'd like to work with uh, Martina McBride, Alan Jackson. Those are two country artists I'd like to work with. I'd like to work with Diana Krall, although that'll probably never happen. I did get to work with Manhattan Transfer once because they're one of my absolute favorites. Played on one song with them, you know. Oh, uh, I mean, I can sit around and think of artists that I really respect, you know. That there's a ton of them out there for sure. What would you credit your success as an artist to? Now, are we talking as a studio musician or as a solo artist? Just all or in both. All. Well, I was born with a better than average ear. I had a lot of heavyweight music education but the best thing was to be accepted by this amazing group of musicians in Nashville that we called the A-Team and the education I got from those guys you couldn't buy that education there's no school in the world that could teach it to you and to work with great musicians like them with all the great artists, you know, it's just, uh, to me, uh, that, that's what, you know, that, that's the amazing thing to me. And, uh, and, uh, it, it, it couldn't have been any better, you know, hypothetical here. If you could go back and talk to a young Charlie McCoy, hold him by the shoulders and give him some advice. Or just tell him anything. Give him a clue about something or a heads up. What would you have told him? Well, if there's a, if you're a studio musician, a couple things you need to know. First, check your ego at the door. Don't need it. What we need, what we need is to compliment the song and singer the best we can, you know. 
Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the Hall of Fame piano player Floyd Kramer, on the record by Jimmy Dean called Big Bad John, Floyd, this the whole song, he had a hammer beaten on a metal coat rack. That was his contribution. You know, and it's like, let's do whatever we need to do to make this a great record. And that that's a great example of that. So I would say, check your ego at the door. You know, if you want to play every note you know, go make your own records. <laughs> and 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 number one, always listen to, pay attention to the song, what it has to say. You know, you don't want to be playing uh, heavy metal stuff behind a ballad like uh, "I Will Always Love You." You know, you gotta you have to match the style of the song. Yeah, and then secondly. Pay attention to all the other musicians. You're all there together, and, uh, you know, let's let's work as a team. What is the best thing about being Charlie McCoy, not just from a musical sense? Well, I, I, I said uh, I had an interview in uh, France a couple of years ago, and the guy said, he said, uh, you know, what, what's your, what do you think, the your secret, what is what do you think is, the things that make a good wife. And I said, oh, that's easy. I said, uh, le bon Dieu, le bon femme, le bon family, le bon santé, le bon musique, et les bons amis. A good God, a good wife, a good family, good health, good music, and good friends. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm going to leave you with this question then. Given that music is a worldwide thing, especially instrumental music. For anyone who might be listening to this, and you've been to a lot of places around the world, wherever they are, France, the United States, what would you say to anyone who's listening in? Uh, well, you know what? Music is truly the international language. And uh, I think, you know, and when I travel overseas, and, oh, and also, I will say this, American music is still the most popular music in the world. Because when I travel overseas, you go to restaurants, you know, you go places where they're playing music. You're almost always hearing American music. But there's great music around the world. Really, uh, you know, I've heard amazing music in Japan and, and in Eastern Europe. And, and I, it's just, when I, I love it when people play from the heart, no matter what it is. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, hey, I'd say to people, seek out good music and enjoy it. Who is Charlie McCoy? How would you define the man? Uh, the most blessed man in America, <laughs> to begin with. From a, had a great mother, great father, have a, had a half-brother, he was the only, the only sibling, and, and uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. I have uh, two great kids, five great grandkids, and I'm uh, and I'm living a wonderful life. Winters in Florida, and the rest of the year in Nashville, and I'm still working in this great industry uh, and uh, playing, you know, doing what I love to do. And you know, when you when you love what you do, it's not like work. Yeah. Well, anyone out there who wants some more information, they can visit charliemccoy.com. 
charliemccoy.com. And if anyone has any comments on the show, they can call 912-376-9529. Mr. McCoy, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's it's an honor to speak to you, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm uh, I'm still down here huffing and puffing, so uh, <laughs> Nashville's a great city. Come on down and see us. Thank you so much. My pleasure to talk to you. Till next time. Okay. Thank you, sir. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks, Paul. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.